My God, my bright abyss, into which all my longing will not go. Once more I come to the edge of all I know, and believing nothing, believe in this. That is a portion of an unfinished poem by Christian Wyman, who uh, is a poet and now adjunct faculty member at Yale Divinity School. Unfortunately, he came the year after I left because I would have loved to have taken a class with him. Um, and he has a really interesting story. He's in his, about his 40s now. When he was 39, uh, he was diagnosed with uncurable uh, terminal uh, blood cancer. Uh, he's been living with that for about a, a decade or so now. Uh, and a year before that diagnosis, he reconverted to Christianity. He grew up in Texas uh, in a Christian home, but for about two decades or so, uh, just uh, was no longer identifying as a Christian or going to church. Um, but the thing that happened to him is he fell in love. Uh, and then he and his wife uh, started going to church together, and then cancer hit. And around that time, too, he, had, he just was unable to write poetry. Uh, he writes a lot about this in a, a book called My Bright Abyss, uh, which this poem uh, is the very beginning of that book, My God, My Bright Abyss. Um, and he, coming back to faith, he was able to begin to compose poems again, even though he had given it up for about four years. These are some thoughts that he wrote on uh, poetry from his essay called Love Bade Me Welcome, which he, uh, which um, got some traction uh, because he writes about uh, his coming to faith. I mean, this is someone who was well known in sort of the secular poetry world. For him to come to faith surprised a lot of people. He writes, I do think that poetry is how religious feeling has survived in me. Partly this is because I have at times experienced in the writing of a poem some access to a power that feels greater than I am. And it seems reductive, even somehow a deep betrayal, to attribute that power merely to the unconscious or to the dynamism of language itself. But also, if I look back on the poems I've written in the past two decades, it almost seems as if the one constant is God, or rather, his absence. Speaking to the sort of existential power of poetry, I recently read someone's definition of art, which is like one of those ineffable things that uh, you feel like you can never define but someone and you can categorize poetry in this is making the infinite finite um, and so he's talking about the power there and ultimately poetry all poetry his poetry in particular pointing to god uh, either in uh, presence or absence and this is the reason uh, paul the apostle was wise to quote greek hymns to zeus the most distant of deities in the Greek pantheon, uh, when he was in Athens and speaking uh, to the Athenians who loved to debate over ideas and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And Paul says about uh, God, uh, he sees an altar to an unknown God and about this unknown God, he says, let me tell you about the unknown God. He's actually not far from each one of us for, and he quotes one hymn, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So here Paul is uh, speaking again to the pagan Greeks, and he floats the idea of Jesus Christ on their own culture, uh, religion, philosophy, and art, so that they might come uh, to understand him. 
And ultimately, he gets around to the idea of the resurrection of the dead. At the end of the day, he's concerned to talk to them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And you don't see it here because it's uh, not in our passage that's in the bulletin, uh, but it comes later in the chapter. This idea of resurrection would have been a filthy notion to the Greeks. If you know anything about uh, Greek philosophy, they valued uh, wisdom above all else, and their pursuit was to escape the material for the transcendent. You know, this is Platonic philosophy, that eternity is sort of abstract forms. And so to talk about a man dying, you know, that's the escape. Death is the portal to eternity. To talk about a man dying and coming back to life would have seemed really absurd and gross to them. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's no portal to eternal life. But Paul talking about this is effective. Uh, basically, he's saying all your uh, search for wisdom, the thing that you want most, is found in Jesus Christ, uh, who was raised from the dead. By the way, uh, you know, that's the, the thing that you're pursuing and the paradoxical place that you think you would least likely f- to, uh, find it is it a man who came back to life in a body. And indeed, we learn later, if you uh, fast forward in Acts chapter 17, uh, we read, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, of course, of course, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. Uh, some men joined him and believed, and goes on to name a, a couple of them. Uh, so Paul uh, has some success, but of course some mocked and reviled this idea, and more importantly, uh, some turned from uh, mere Greek wisdom and believed in uh, the true God. And so just to restate my point here about what's happening uh, with Paul at the Areopagus, the Greeks wanted eternity, so Paul explains with logic and reason, using their own uh, cultural ambitions and artifacts, that a crucified and risen Messiah, which looks like foolishness to the Greeks, is the ultimate wisdom, and therefore the portal to eternity. And uh, so regarding their greatest hopes, concerns, fears, and ambitions, or what have you, Jesus is the answer to these questions, not in the places where they are looking for the answers, but in Jesus Christ. And uh, the unknown God that he sees the altar made out to, in fact, is therefore not an aloof deity uh, who is uh, greatly distant, but he is nearby, he is a nearby and material reality. And he is the, the answer to their concerns and therefore all of their idolatry. Well, what are our society's idols? Uh, what is our own society's idols? You know, uh, 2,000 years later, you could say we look a lot like the Greeks, but we're not entirely like the people of Athens. Uh, you know, another way to ask the question of what our society's idols are is uh, what are our greatest concerns and hopes, as I said? You know, what things do we find noble and true and beautiful, the things worth aspiring after, uh, what are, therefore, the idols that we fashion, not of gold and uh, silver and stone, but of our imagination to pursue after these uh, uh, ambitions and to alleviate all of our concerns and anxieties? Um, there are a lot of specifics that I get, could get into, but I posit to you that our two primary underlying idols in our own culture are individualism 
and consumerism. And one basically uh, flows out of the other. Um, and it all started in the garden. You know, it all started in the garden when Adam and Eve tried to take matters into their own hand and uh, they consume the fruit. You know, they, they, they eat the, 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 the answer. Uh, and all idolatry ever since seems to derive from um, our ego and appetite. You know, whether it's uh, uh, something that relates to your own life or something else, uh, all of it sort of comes out of our own individual pride and our hunger after things, you know, to pursue whether it's material things or, or ideas, notions that people have lied to us about. Um, and so the answer to rugged individualism and uh, self-reliance and pride, these sort of American idols, uh, is to give up. It's to give up. Jesus Christ is at the end of you and all you know. Just as Paul said to uh, the Athenians, the answer lies in eternity and a, a material man who was raised back from the dead. And that sounded uh, completely ludicrous. The answer to the American idol of rugged individualism that gets us nowhere ultimately is finally to give up. And Jesus Christ meets us at the end of us. And then I talked about consumerism earlier, remember? And so the answer, what's the answer to idolatry? The idolatry of consumerism, of, of hunger, of appetite, whether actually eating things, overeating things, or just hungering after things and ideas. Uh, the answer is that the, 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 the God uh, who's, uh, love and, who is love and provides eternity uh, cannot be bought. Uh, his love cannot be bought. The Beatles were right about one thing, money can't buy me love, right? When it comes to God, uh, the, the, the appetite, uh, the, 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 the hunger uh, cannot be uh, bought, the love. Rather, the scandal of the gospel is that the love is free for the taking. God's love is free for the taking. As Paul says, he has given us assurance, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We have assurance in him, and to, to know this, we look to Jesus who has been raised from the dead. The flip side to uh, American or uh, Western uh, idolatry is that the non-Christian or atheist often rejects, the, rejects ideas about God that are simply not true. So the flip side uh, to the one true God, the God of Jesus Christ, that people uh, often, when often rejecting him, they're rejecting ideas that are actually not true about him, actually rejecting a different God, actually rejecting a false idol. Um, I was uh, working as a chaplain at a VA hospital and uh, went into a room uh, of a man who I'd never met before. Uh, and I'm sorry if I've told this story here before. I'm now at the point in my ministry here at the Advent that I think I might be repeating stories. Uh, I had about three years. It was a good run. And now you're going to hear some for a second, third time. Um, I know I've told it somewhere around here, but, but maybe not here to the five o'clock uh, service. Uh, but I went into this room and uh, told the man, uh, you know, I'm a chaplain. Uh, can I visit with you? And he wanted uh, nothing to do with religion. And he let me know it. What felt like about 45 minutes of a complete onslaught of, you know, of uh, missile volleys of vitriol aimed at me as representing everything that he disliked about Christianity in particular, but any sort of 
uh, notion of religion. I just could not get an, a word in edgewise. You know, I wanted I wanted to say something, but really I was there for him, and I, I, and I needed to listen. I needed to take this onslaught until finally, and maybe it wasn't 45 minutes, but it sure felt like it, he just stopped. He had completely exhausted everything that he needed to say, and we sat there in silence, which, again, felt like an eternity, but was probably only about five seconds, and I said, I don't believe in that God either. Can I talk to you about Jesus Christ? <laughs> uh, the, 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 the things that you think about the triune God, uh, I have it uh, a whole other way, that in fact he is a God of love. Um, and I proceeded to tell him uh, how all his hopes and fears for probably just a few minutes um, were, were found in Jesus. And he asked me to come back again. Uh, and, and we had a, a, a few more conversations following that. We didn't get very far, but at least uh, had a listening <laughs> uh, to, to, to what I wanted to tell him about the, the, the God, the true God, the, the God that he had not yet heard about. Um, the thing that he was rejecting was something completely different. And no matter what side of the cross you're on and its justification, uh, we all have idols. We all have idols. You have idols. And we're slave to these idols. Um, David Foster Wallace, another uh, well-known literary figure, um, he gave a, a commencement speech back in 2005 at Kenyon College. Around this time of year, I start to take a, a renewed interest in commencement speeches. The big one that's going around right now, is, of course, is Will Ferrell, which I think is kind of actually a, a B, B plus. Um, I mean, people like it because it's Will Ferrell, but his final idea is kind of, I mean, it's just sort of, it's sort of relatively cliche. Um, do charitable works, basically, is kind of what he says. Um, and he's actually not super funny the whole time. You start to see an unveiled Will Ferrell. But I'm talking about David Foster Wallace, one of the best commencement speeches ever given uh, back in 2005. Kenyon College, by the way, which I know very little about. I mean, it's a small liberal arts college, but they often have great commencement speeches. Um, he said this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some involvable uh, set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story, the whole trick, is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others uh, to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship 
is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. The sad thing is that three years later, Wallace died by suicide, a committed atheist. Uh, Here's a man who is perceptive about life and what it really means to, to live in this world that everyone worships, that we're all clamoring after idols that not only enslave us, but eat us alive. Um, but back to you. What are your idols? What do you worship? You know, David Foster is right. Uh, basically, any one of these different categories, is, uh, whether it's money or, or beauty, power, intellect, um, you're just never going to have enough or be enough, always clamoring after more. I recently read a few years ago an article that said, we finally figured out the amount of money someone needs to make in a year uh, to basically feel happy. $75,000. And I said, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no way. No way, you're going to want 76, you know? I mean, you're going to want 100. It's just, it, this. The, whoever wrote that uh, didn't know anything about life. Um, <laughs> so I say to you that there is a true God and not an idol of human imagination. Uh, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, as Paul says, not served by human hands, which basically means uh, he does not need our so-called merits of earning, uh, uh, we don't need to earn his favor. We are his offspring, and he's nearby. In fact, he's sent his Holy Spirit to be so nearby that he is inside of us. Paul, at the beginning of his letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians, at the end of the first chapter says to the Thessalonians, um, their faith is known throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia, uh, because you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And so I say to you this evening, turn from the subtle and unconscious idols, like David Foster Wallace says, of your imagination, or maybe they are made of silver, gold, and stone, but turn from them to the living and true God in whom we live and move and have our being. There in him and at the end of yourself, you'll find life and not enslavement. My God, my bright abyss into which all my longing will not go. Once more, I come to the edge of all I know and believing nothing, believe in this. Amen.